Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call. We'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener... Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalaya. So good evening to you all. Another hour of the Ask Noah Show kicking off. We're happy to be here. I want to start out by making a correction in last week's episode. I There are is a group of people and they make uh, snaps for Ubuntu. And... Um, and there's a software that 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 does the snaps, and we're going to talk more about snaps uh, in in a future episode because I think it's something that we haven't really covered in its full potential, and I think it's important. And we actually had a question on the air about snap packages. Now that is Snapcraft. The people that we interviewed um, were from a project called Snapshooter.io, and if you remember from the interview, these are people that are using DigitalOcean to, uh, or, or rather, they have a backup service for DigitalOcean that allows infinitely more flexibility than what DigitalOcean themselves offers. And so, uh, and we, they were kind enough to come on the program, and we had a really great chat with them, and I think they're offering a really competitive product. And then I totally screwed up and set the wrong website, and I put the wrong website in the show notes. So we have that corrected from last week, but I'm going to, I'm just at the top of the hour. I just want to make sure I make a correction. Snapshooter.io, not Snapcraft. And yes, I know the difference. And it's actually kind of funny. Like that was a really great opportunity for someone to troll me and y'all didn't. So yeah, y'all missed out. <clears throat> anyway, uh, another exciting thing I want to get to. I, I should mention we're not taking calls tonight. Um, we don't have the phone lines open because Wendell Wilson is joining us from Level 1 Techs, and we are going to talk his ear off, and we're going to run him right into the top of the hour. So uh, we're not taking calls. I'm so sorry if there was somebody that had a really important question. Uh, we'll get to you next week. Starting January 2nd, we are moving to Tuesdays. We're going to move to Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Central. That's 4 p.m. Pacific or 7 p.m. Eastern, 12 a.m. UTC. See how I have all that lined up and in my little notes right here so I can just read that off and sound all professional? Of course, you can find out if you went to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar and robots will convert it into your local time zone. Uh, so starting January 2nd will be the first day we're switching to Tuesdays. And what we're going to do is we're going to partner with our friends Linux Unplugged. And so as they wrap up their program, we're going to come in right after them. And so Tuesdays is just going to be like the Linux day. If you want to have like nonstop community Linux involvement, you can join Linux Unplugged before that. And then shortly after that, uh, we will have uh, the, the Ask Noah show. So that will be kind of cool. Uh, and lastly, thank you to everyone who did our War Stories episode. We are going to release, that was on Saturday, uh, and it was extremely well received. We filled the entire hour up with phone calls. That episode is going to come out later this week over the Thanksgiving holiday, so you have a little extra something, something to get you through the holidays. So if Uncle Henry is at the house and Uncle Henry wants to talk politics and you just want to talk about sweet, sweet Linux, that's how you do it. You just put your, you just put your, uh, your Apple iPod, your, what, what is the wireless thing called? 
I I wire I I I know wire whatever they call it. Put those in. You can listen to the Ask Noah show. All right. So uh, coming up, the rest of this hour, we're going to fill it with uh, Mr. Wendell Wilson from Level One Techs. Our next guest is someone I am super excited to introduce. Now, I have followed this guy for quite some time on the internet, and uh, if there's one thing I've really come to respect and appreciate about him, it's that where there are some others in the tech space that get lost in the social minutiae and the politics of technology, this guy, he sticks to the facts, and he gives pure technical gold every time he opens his mouth. Joining me on the program for the first time is Mr. Wendell Wilson from Level One Techs. Hey, Wendell, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, how's it going? I'm, I'm, uh, what an introduction. I don't know. It's, I, I don't know about all that, but I, right. I'm here, so I guess that's good. Yeah, you just, you, you have to, your, your signature line, right? I'm just some bozo. Yeah, I literally am just some bozo. So <laughs> I've, I've seen I've seen some stuff in my career, but you know, other than that, it's <laughs> yeah. The thing is, though, you're you are you are a guy that has a passion for technology and a passion for Linux, and that makes you a friend of this show, and it makes you super interesting to our audience. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. So you have worked um, and produced a number of videos on a plethora of technology, a wide range. Uh, but I know that one thing that you and I are going to see eye to eye perfectly on is. Is Linux. So tell me the story. How did you get started with Linux? What was the what was your first draw to Linux? <laughs> I don't think you've got enough time in your program. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like to hear. See, I told you we were off on the right foot. <laughs> uh, so Linux, I, Linux for me goes back to probably 1996, 1997, 1998, somewhere through there. I mean, it was it was it was really. Like it was a fantastically ancient kernel. Like um, there were murmurs about kernel 2.0, but I, w- I really got started uh, before kernel 2.0, and there was nothing. And uh, it, there were, it was another student and I. I was I was a student at the time, and so another student and I uh, were, were basically aliens, as if deposited from Mars or something with with the rest <laughs> of the student body. And so you know, it was it was very much a Windows Novell, well DOS and Novell, and a oh, little yeah. bit of Windows. Uh, world and um the technology at the institution was uh shall we say abandoned it was it was i mean it was it was deposited like as if you know it was alien technology and as if by osmosis people would would sort of learn the technology and so you know people would hit it with rocks and sticks and the, the technology would would fail <laughs> and so and, and so i had a computer which was kind of a big deal at the time and it was put together from scraps and 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 e-waste and technology and that's a whole that's a whole other story but to make a long story short it was like windows was kind of frustrating windows was kind of fun cuz i like to play games too but windows was also kind of frustrating cuz it was hard to get, actually get work done right. and do and do interesting things but we were confronted with a problem the other student and i and that was our school was all token ring but it was the hub school for the area and so that meant that we got an internet connection which was like a big deal and all the other schools fed from that internet connection now all of the other schools had frame relay and lease lines and things like that and it was all ethernet and so there was like eight computers in the building that were on ethernet and so those were on the internet and everything else was token ring and so we were like why you know what what's going on because we were friends with the technology teacher and the the people and it was and you know uh and that kind of thing so it was like there was no way to get token ring onto ethernet and so the the other student and i were like we can we can figure this out and there's a thing at the time called ip masquerading it was even before network address translation was a thing Mm -hmm. And so it was like, okay, I think we can solve this problem with Linux. And I want to say that Squid was also a thing. Like we also had a Squid, Squid proxy kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So we went we went from an IPX network. So we helped sort of set up IP on on the network, 
and uh, go from well, IP in addition to IPX and set up a TCP stack on Windows, which was a big deal at the time because Windows didn't, didn't really even properly support TCP. Mm-hmm. And, and then we would do IP masquerading with Linux. And it was like, we solved a problem with Linux. This is amazing. And, and so, you know, everybody was like, this is amazing. It's great. The school was really happy. The administration farther up the chain was not as happy. Right. That, that, that may be also as a story for another time. Yeah. Yeah. When we want your networking help, we'll let you know kind of a thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting, Wendell, because what you find is a lot of times it's not that in some cases Windows just flat out wasn't capable of some of these things. Other times, even when Windows was capable of some of these things, the license barrier or the ability to just obtain the software barrier, that prevented a lot of people from from doing that. I think so early on, a lot of the people like yourself – they got introduced to Linux from the standpoint of it's a tool and it's available. And if I'm willing to put a little bit of work into it, I can make it do some amazing things. Yes, exactly. Well, it's funny that you say that because the first the first pass of we need to get these kids in trouble, but in such a way as to uh, not seem like we're just being contrary for the sake of being contrary was mm-hmm. exactly that. It was Oh, you have violated violated the license agreement because there's no way that you can do that without you know buying software. And if you didn't buy right. software, it's obviously pirated. We can't pirate software. And it was like, oh, really? Let me fax you a copy of the GPL. Yeah, right. Yeah, and and so and I had an, a, another good friend of mine. Um, and it, it actually was Squid uh, that got him into Linux because he was setting up a Squid server and tried to do it on Windows, but couldn't get the school to approve the the licensing and stuff. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it really does. It it happens. Um, so tell me about today. Fast forward to 2017. What is Linux doing for you today? Why is it exciting for you today? Honestly, like having that kind of history with Linux, it is amazing how fast, you know, it's kind of the joke, right? It's like, is this going to be the year of the Linux desktop? (laughs) Well, uh, (laughs) Jim says, Jim says 2017 was the year of the Linux desktop. It it kind of is. And it kind of, it kind of like, I can see both sides. I can see both sides because the pragmatist Mm -hmm. in me is like, I get why people like like Apple, let's 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 call it the appliancization. I don't know of right. a better word for this of of technology. And so, like Apple has embraced that, and that's why Apple has eighty or hundred billion dollars in the bank because they're like, let's do this. And I don't I don't think they're particularly good stewards of the the open source. No. And that that's why that's that's why Apple to me is just so egregious in every every sense of the word. But but I can see the pragmatic thing. Like I can see that most people just want a piece of technology that works. Myself included. I mean. There are times when I do not want to fiddle with things. I want to set up something and I want to I want to have the technology do stuff for me. And so there's a lot of stuff that I've done in my life. A lot of the technology around me is more fragile than I would like. But the reason it's fragile is because I've automated large parts of my life. It's like the whole like embrace the don't repeat yourself from a developer standpoint. Mm, Imagine if mm-hmm. you could do that with life. It's like I'm going to, you know, like the whole Amazon, the, 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 the button where like you press the button and you reorder stuff. Yeah. Dude, I'm, I'm like 10 years ahead of you, Amazon. That's, that's been a thing since I, I mean, I was doing it with screen scraping because I don't want to deal with the minutia. I want software to read these things and handle these things and just deal with it. Right. You know, in a lot of ways, what you were talking about is how Apple isn't, they're not in the business of selling computers. A lot of people think that they're not, they're in the business of selling an experience and they yeah. couple a computer with an operating system with you know, the kind of support and, and software infrastructure, and they sell an entire experience. And to a certain group of people, that is appealing. But you know, Wendell, what I have 
what I've said for a long time, and I, I continually see this be proven true, eventually people get sick of that. There is a small portion of users that are okay with just, I want to turn my computer on, check my email, and browse YouTube. But the vast majority of people want to push the envelope at some point, and they, they bump against those artificial barriers that Apple puts in place. Because they're, Apple's market uh, really is uh, vendor lock-in. That's that's how they make their money, and so and so. But people bump against those barriers. So I think I think we're going to see that change. But you know, it's it's you and I are, are definitely eye to eye on that. I, I definitely I definitely feel like an idiot because I see things like. So I agree with you, but I'll I'll even go you one step further, and mm-hmm. that is, um, have you heard of if this then that? Yes. So so I think that's like the normal person version of that, and so I think that. Even with the the appliance technology, they're going to embrace if the, something like if then then that, and I think that 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 is one of the more insidious examples because like if the cloud is down, you know I can't I'm suddenly helpless and I can't you know do whatever or I can't you know the, the technology is mysteriously broken and all I have is impotent rage because the cloud and I can't there's just nothing I can do and so that's that that frustration I think that is what is going to lead to people you know throwing like breaking the technology and throwing it away because they can't do things like that themselves without being dependent on a, a server in a box in the middle of Seattle somewhere. Yeah, someone else's computer. Did you see that article that came out just a couple of days ago about the Logitech Harmony? There's a certain number of them that are just going to be rendered yeah. useless because the cloud yeah. server is just going to it's just going to go away. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the better example I think is when Google shut down their their home hub thing because it yes. was like, ah, we bought some people, we took it over, it's great. Ah, let's just shut it down. The primary pillars of this show, the Ask Noah show, is is we're always looking to empower people with technology, and that's why we advocate so strongly that people are using local resources and and understanding the technology. There is so much drive in society today to just I want to pay a subscription and have a thing, and I don't want to understand the thing, and I don't want to understand how the thing works and I don't want to understand how to troubleshoot the thing I just want the thing to be delivered and that's a dangerous mentality and ultimately I think it's going to bite people in the rear a few weeks ago I think it was you just finished building your new Linux battle station your words not mine and uh, I, I just want to stop right there and say that anything that is called a Linux battle station is extremely cool and I want one <laughs> <laughs> but aside from that uh, tell me the story what is a Linux battle station and what do you do with a Linux battle station so right now the current incarnation of it it's funny i was actually working on it today so it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit torn down from from what it was so i did a video on it's a lean lee sit stand desk so i've got i don't know it's it's i've got, i've caught the sit stand fever i kind of like sit stand desks as it turns out i mean since i was like 9 or 10 years old i've been sitting behind a desk you know many 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 hours per day and I, I find I like standing up sometimes. I don't right. know. It's weird. It's really bizarre. I, I haven't gotten tired of it yet. Probably in a year or two I will. But Turns so out the rest I've, of the world kind of thinks the same thing, that it might be sometimes nice and, and healthy to, in fact, stand up <laughs> rather than sit behind <laughs> a computer all day. Unfortunately, I like to have a lot of pixels. And so it's not really like a desk that's conducive to that is not really like super – it's not really like a thing, and so one of the, like, I, I'm also kind of a cheapskate. Like I, I really like my, uh, until until I was well out of college and sort of well on my way with the career. Pretty much all of my computers were either hand me downs or recycled or ones where I, I had like replaced components on the motherboard. Like the first decent computer I had when I was in high school, I literally replaced a fuse on the motherboard for the PS2 ports. There were no, there's no USB at the time, and uh, it was you know quote unquote a bad motherboard. But it was like oh I can fix this because soldering and, and reason and logic, and so I, I, I splurged though 
on uh, monitor arms, Spaceco monitor arms, and they are they're expensive, but they oh my gosh, you can move your monitors around, you can position position them exactly where you want, and so like if I'm if I'm you know, I did overdid it, you know, with the exercise or whatever, I can sort of tilt the monitor down a little bit. So I'm sort of looking down into the monitor. Monitor arms are great. Yeah. And so because of that experience, I was like, OK, I'm going to go a little over the top. I get the Lee and Lee DK05 sit stand desk. I ordered it. It was shipped here from from Asia. And that's, that's a, it's a crazy expensive desk. It's like twelve or thirteen hundred dollars, something like that. And it'll hold. It's got. It'll it'll hold two full systems. It's two ATX systems or one EATX system or and one ATX system, two you know two power supplies. And it sit stand and the computers sort of go in the bottom. And so I've set that up right now. It's a Threadripper system. It's a, there's a single uh, there's a single system in it right now because I'm working on the other system that's in there. It's a 16 core Threadripper with 128 gigs of RAM wow. and some NVMe storage. And I'm redoing the monitor setup because I was not super happy with the monitor setup. I had a single 40-inch 4K and 224 like 1080p monitors from a long time ago. Yeah. And, and so I bit the bullet and I was like, okay, I'm going to do four 4K monitors, four 32-inch 4K monitors. And it's just a, it's just a simple two-by-two two configuration, so four DisplayPort connections. I do the PCI Express pass-through and things like that, but I use that for – uh, development and surfing the internet and goofing off on 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 YouTube and uh, running Windows virtual machines and sometimes seamlessly sometimes I dual boot depending on whatever it is that I want to do but I, I find most of the time for the for the applic- for the Windows applications that I have to run the PCI Express pass through stuff works fine because I can give it a GPU and then I can still game and I can also do the applications that need GPU virtualization it's very pragmatic it's very it's very like the 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 Stallman esque among you will will be frowning, and I, I I can see the furrowed brow, but I'm I'm pragmatic. I just I don't really I just want to get my stuff done. We lost the we lost the the Stallman guys at the beginning of the episode when I didn't say GNU slash Linux, so that's it's fine. They tuned out. <laughs> the uh, and I want to get into the virtualization here in a little bit, but uh, my understanding is that the the MSI board that you have, they are actually custom writing some UEFI code for you to 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 facilitate some of the stuff you're doing. Talk to me about that. Yeah, MSI has been really, really great. I mean, MSI is a huge company. They are uh, sort of partnered up with AMD. They're they're one of like from talking to the people inside of AMD. AMD feels like that they don't. I mean, in not so many words. I'm I'm sort of creating some some controversy where perhaps there is none. But the impression that I got from talking to people at at AMD because uh, uh, MSI sent me to AMD's campus in, in Texas, which was a crazy amount of fun. And I got to do the press thing, but I also got to talk to the engineers, which is sort of the unusual thing because usually the the people that are press and gamers and people that are going to build buzz around the products can't ask things like get repositories and tell me about, you know, what's going on with the AMD open source side of the world versus like the closed source side of the world. And, right. you know, you guys have been doing open source for 10 years, but right. I don't understand because it seems kind of schizophrenic. Can you explain it to me? And that's a story. That's a, that is a wonderful, interesting story in and of itself. But, uh, so, and so MSI since then, I've been like, Hey, let's work on this or Hey, let's do that. And so they have done some custom spins of the, the UEFI for me to try to help troubleshoot some of the issues with like so with Threadripper, Threadripper has actually been pretty good, but there are bus reset issues um, with some peripherals to where like if you use a PCI Express device, uh, you can't use it again in in a virtual machine until huh. you power cycle the card, and it turns out that that's actually just a problem with uh, RX Vega in the ROM. But it, uh, with NVIDIA cards, for example, it's not a problem in the in the ROM. It's it's something else. But there's getting ready to be in a Giza update that is going to address some of these issues. Uh, on Threadripper, and so I'm helping test some of the early code and some of the early stuff 
um, that, that goes with that. And so it's it's been very uh, – MSI is interested in it because we have enough of a following. You know, Even just on the Linux side with the Linux channel, we've got – we right. just passed 100,000 subscribers, which is like – Congratulations, I mean, man. There are dozens of us. Dozens of us. Uh, so – uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's exciting that there are that many people <laughs> on Linux. And, and, you know, I was talking to some of the marketing people when I was at AMD, and it's like, you know, it's kind of a niche audience, and I understand that, you know, AMD's got to put out bigger fires first. And, and the guy was like, well, your audience is large enough that we're, you know, we're going to, if it's a low-hanging fruit for us, basically, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Right, Low-hanging sure. fruit for, for us, we're going we're gonna to try to do something. And, and, I, and I get the feeling that's where a little bit of the, the MSI stuff comes in, too, because, it, you know, MSI's helping AMD do some of the engineering. I mean, obviously, these things are not done in a vacuum. The board partners want a good product, too. So it's like, hey, can you help us test this? Hey, is there a driver issue? Hey, you know, who, what, you know, who needs hardware to, to test this and, and things like that. And so some of the hardware that I've been given, I've loaned out to people that are working on developery problems to try to sort of move the ball forward a little bit with those kind of things. Cause I don't have time to work on, like, I don't have time to get my hands that dirty. I mean, yeah. hopefully if level one, you know, in a, in, a, in a year or two or three or whatever, if level one is successful enough, then yeah, that would be great. I would love to be doing nothing but that all day long, but I got bills I got to pay. Yeah, I hear you. I 100%. But, you know, what you have managed to accomplish is is nothing short of awesome. And you are making a real difference in the community and bettering my ability as a Linux user to be able to use commodity hardware off the shelf, plug it in and just have it work. And and that that happens because of the hard work and dedication that you're doing cuz a lot of people they they'll look at your they'll look at your videos or they'll look at uh, content that's produced online and they'll say, oh, "That's easy. Anyone could do that." Uh until they try and do it. And then they realize how much uh, you have no idea. You know, and I get people all the time. They'll say, I wish I could work for an hour a week. Yeah, me too. I wish I could work for an hour a week. Just because our lifetime is one hour a week, there are 10, 15, 20 hours that go in to production of that one single hour that you see or hear. Uh, and people don't always understand that behind the curtain. So a huge thank you because it is appreciated to those of us who do know how much work you're putting in to make something like that happen. It is a crazy amount of work, but I would be remiss if I really 90% of the awesome stuff that I've done has really to just bring other developers in and other developers to the table. And like um, uh, Jeff from Host Vision, he's a guy mm-hmm. that I've been talking to for a little bit. I don't know if you guys know, but Ryzen's not, not on the Threadripper side, but on the Ryzen side with QEMU. So like the whole virtualization thing, it's like if you use Zen, it's basically fine. But Zen is a, sort of a pain for other reasons. But right. QEMU is pretty good. But QEMU, uh, you know, you get bare metal performance, but there's the NPT bug. Well, Jeff from HostVision was able to zero in on what exactly the bug was, and then it was escalated, and then some people at Red Hat, I think Paulo at Red Hat, was like, oh, yeah, I see what's going on here. So they fixed that. And as a result of that fix from Jeff at HostVision and Paulo, uh, there, a, a number of bugs in QEMU have been exposed with regard to interrupt handling and PS like the PS2 initialization and stuff like that. And so I, I, I might be a catalyst, but those guys are doing the hard work. Yeah, and it's always it, Linux has always been a community effort, right? Like, and 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 I, th- I think anyone that's a part of that community s- catches on to that pretty quickly. Um, but it does take somebody to spearhead and to be the you know to be the talking head, to be the guy that you know for people to rally around. And and you are playing a major part. And so you know, I, at least from my perspective, I'm very thankful for that. On your Linux Battle Station, I understand that it runs Fedora, and I 
always thought that was an interesting choice. And I this is coming from a person who has been a Fedora core user since version Uno 1. And I've used every release of Fedora after that. But the majority of people in the Linux world, uh, particularly those that are producing content around it, they're using Canonical's Ubuntu because they want to appeal to the largest possible audience. So tell me about your decision to use Fedora. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny that you say that because the the developers that I'm working with inside of MSI were more comfortable with Ubuntu. So I switched over to Ubuntu to help troubleshoot the issues. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, but, but uh, part of, Fedora has a special place in my heart because um, it seems like it's a lot closer to the pulse. I feel like that Canonical um, – made some very obvious sort of missteps with yep. the way that they handled their community and their software repository. And they really put a lot of effort into things where the effort probably could have been spent somewhere else, but that's open source. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. we have to try and move forward until we, until we tried literally everything. And then it's like, okay, this one is winning out. Okay. We'll just go that way. Uh, whereas in the commercial world, it's like, okay, we're going to sort of pragmatically set the direction here and we're going to hope that this works out. And you know, if you, if it fails, well then, you know, the business goes under or whatever, but there's no, there's no effort really sort of put in, put in on that side. It, it's really just a, a personal preference. The reason that I like Fedora is because I like the way that it organizes the system. And I like that the choices that the, the maintainers of the, the core packages um, have, have dealt with it. I, I use Red Enterprise, uh, Red Hat Enterprise, um, a lot for uh, consulting and just helping people I know that run Red Hat Enterprise Linux at scale. Um, and so there's sort of maybe a little bit of bias there. Historically, I grew up on 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 Debian. I mean, of course, the system from you know the 90s and 2000s was Slackware, but uh, you know probably early 2000s I liked Debian um, the most, and so I would say that the Fedora change for me. It was probably around version 16 or 17. I, I liked how, oh, wow. how quickly Fedora was uh, adopting packages. There were a few things that I didn't like about – like I like Debian for, for servers and like machines that need to be rock-solid stable. But I was sort of looking at the graphs on the other side of the fence and saying, wow, those Fedora people are getting all this new software and everything just kind of works. And I just – I kind of like it. So and that, and that was around – so 15 was the first version that shipped with GNOME 3. So you jumped in at a at a really interesting time because that was a there was a lot of hate for GNOME back then. Yeah, I really liked GNOME as it turns out. And and I, I was not really super vocal about that, but it was like, yes, I like where GNOME is going. I like I could see what they were doing under the hood with GNOME had the customizability and, and it, a lot of the stuff that people knocked GNOME 3 for was really not like it was really forward thinking stuff. And I always like forward thinking stuff even if it's a little bit rough around the edges to use. Um, for the first for the first couple versions, mm-hmm. I don't think that I don't think that GNOME really got it right until like three point one yeah. something one two one three, but that's okay and that's for me. So it's like you know it's like are we gonna are, are we gonna turn the Ubuntu people loose with GNOME three That would have been a disaster. I would agree right. with that. Yeah, but but I liked where they were going. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because I, I wonder if your perception of – which I agree with by the way. Canonical's missteps in the past have their recent actions coming back to a more transparent community, coming back to a community-organized desktop rather than off doing phones and TVs and whatever else they were doing, uh, coming back and concentrating on the Linux desktop with a desktop that has been developed and supported by a multitude of uh, distributions. Does that change your perspective on on how Canonical plays a role in the community? My information on this may be a little bit limited, so this I'm I'm going to reserve the right to change my opinion on this. Okay. But based on what I know of why Canonical made the decision 
uh, not just GNOME. I mean, everybody points to GNOME. There, there have been a lot of little decisions oh, yeah. that have come, come along here. And, and let's just follow these all under the umbrella of we're doing this for business reasons. Mm-hmm. If Canonical is doing this for business reading reasons to redirect those efforts toward shoring up a lot of the stuff, a lot of the the plumbing and infrastructure that really nobody wants to do. I mean, one, and I don't know that this is really a problem, but but my perception of it is that you know, having worked on very large software development projects, uh, there are definitely things in software development projects that literally no one wants to do. That yeah. is like just the most awful tedious tasks ever and linux needs a lot of that and uh in in places like linux the linux ecosystem and you know gnome and you can slice that you can slice that generalization as small as you want and find stuff that needs doing that no one wants to do and i think that the canonical is not going to redirect those resources those business resources from their projects that they're they are abandoning Sure. Um, toward toward other more successful products, and I think that that or projects, I guess, not products, uh, and I think that that is that is a little bit of a tragedy because we need that kind of commercial support to do that. Yeah, Fedora. This is the other reason I like Fedora is because on the business side of things, not only are they eating their own dog food, but Fedora. I get the feeling that that Fedora and especially GNOME three was born out of this. Yeah, GNOME three is not ready. But we're going to eat our own dog food, and that is why it is going into Fedora. 100%. And so, and so like, because I kind of – I feel like I'm a user that kind of halfway knows what they're doing. I, I sort of am like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna bear that cross too with you guys because, you know, that that will make everything better for everybody else. And this is how we can sort of move, move the bar for everybody else because as – you know, I've taught a lot of people how to use Linux. And the reason like this sort of gets into the philosophy of why isn't it really the year of the Linux desktop? Because when you learn Linux, Linux changes you and Linux gives you like you get to a point where it's like, oh, I don't want something like imagine, you know, Android. I think of Android kind of like Linux. And you get to a point where Android is very cookie cutter. It is very appliance like and knowing how stuff runs under the hood with that. Once you get to a point where you understand you can do all these really amazing things with the desktop, you just don't want something as cookie cutter as as Android. And so I think that Linux is changing people, more people than ever. But one of the barriers to adoption is that it is a is a philosophical one. And and it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that I was eating sewage this entire time. This is so much better. It's clean water. This is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I want to I want to switch gears and I want to talk about fi- Linux file systems uh, for a little bit. Do you think um, the Linux file system, obviously things like ButterFS, they, it's you know it's a bag of worms, it really is. But do you think that there is merit in continuing to wait for ButterFS to catch up, or do you think that we should get uh, we should all get on board with something like Hammer and get that ported over? Maybe help complete Hammer two and have it ready to roll on two platforms right off the bat. I'm I don't know enough about Hammer to really. Uh, to really weigh in, my favorite file system of all time is definitely ZFS. <laughs> Another agree. <laughs> I mean, it's I've been inside the bowels of ZFS. I've had to do like I've had I've recovered from some really hairy situations with ZFS, and ZFS's documentation is great. The worst thing about ZFS is the whole Oracle thing. 
Uh, and if it weren't for that, it would just be, and it was, we've got to open ZFS and, and probably Oracle is not going to sue anybody to into oblivion, but I really worry there's going to be a SCO type situation with ZFS eventually, but I, God, I hope not. Yeah. I, I think if, I think if we were going to see that come to, to fruition, it would have. And I have to tell you, it's, it's funny that you say, um, that you've recovered from some nasty situations because 100% of my faith in ZFS is not because I understand the intricate technical details. I leave that for people like Alan Jude, but I have implemented idiot, you know, for whatever reason, I put something into production and then something breaks and it just – it's never bitten me. And enough times you see that happen at, at, at extremely large scale and you start to say, man, this is a really, really solid file system and these people really put some thought into it. And every time I sit down to troubleshoot a ZFS problem, I kind of prepare myself and I'm like, well, it's not Linux and so you're probably going to have to – you're going to have to do a couple dances and we're going to have to jump through some hoops. And 100 percent of the time, it always ends up being easier to recover or fix than I, than I originally thought thought it was going to be. So, yeah, I agree. ZFS is it's it's it really is the I think the future in general of of large production ready file systems. I think um I think outside of like the enterprisey needs of of ZFS plus also there's a lot of really cool changes coming to ZFS. One of those is being the the ability to rebalance VDEVs. So, yes. if you need like the whole like oh my gosh, I'm going to add some more drives and do some other stuff and, and you can do that in in probably, you know, a year or so. Um, but, uh, you know, other file systems, I've also used XFS for like more than 10 years and, uh, XFS, I've always been impressed by XFS's pragmatism because it's not a super crazy Mm -hmm. amount of overhead. Pretty sure if I remember correctly, the metadata is journaled, uh, but Mm -hmm. nothing else. And, um, in terms of like performance, not a lot of overhead and basically doesn't break or destroy anything. Um, I've had a lot more stability, a lot more success stability wise on that 10 year timescale than I've had even with EXT two, three and four, EXT two, three and four are fine, but XFS goes the extra mile for stability. And also most of the systems that I work on tend to have a lot of teeny tiny files. And so, uh, XFS works a, a lot better. Uh, in that situation, even ZFS with all of its overhead works really well because of the the compression. And I've used I've used ButterFS in a couple quasi production systems, and it has not it it has not been terrible. Uh-huh. But but as soon as the RAID five bug came out, I had one system that was that was using that. And as soon as that came out, it's like oh nope, I'm just going to migrate this. I didn't have an issue, but at the same time, it's like wow. This is this is pretty nuts. It was on my to do list to do the the same style testing that I did with uh, the hardware uh, RAID controllers where I introduced corruption and then I wanted to see how the different hardware RAID controllers dealt with it and then how ZFS dealt with it. And it's like, you know, I should do that with ButterFS. I just never got around to it. And then somebody else did that with like the they went they literally, I think, went to like the the man pages for. Uh, one of the raid levels and was like, here, do this to test your raid stuff. And, and ButterFS failed that. And it's like, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. I guess nobody, nobody's tech. I, I would have thought somebody inside Facebook would have done that, but I guess not. In a lot of ways, you got really lucky because there, there are some major issues. I, the, the coolest thing, and I think what you're probably most well known for, at least recently, is hardware virtualization. And so I want to dig into that a little bit. You have done some really impressive and exciting stuff with PCI pass-through. And what I really respect and appreciate about you, Wendell, is that you're not using some appliance-based ISO that you just download, and then I have to dedicate this entire box to one thing. No, you are showing people how to take a workstation at your you know in your case your linux battle station and you are showing in detail how to set up proper pci pass through on my already running fedora rig you have a fantastic guide on your website and we'll have that linked uh, in the show notes but back in august you had said that there was no silver bullet 
And I'm wondering if that's changed at all. Is there a 30-second elevator pitch to getting virtualization with PCI pass-through running in Linux today? The closest to a silver bullet that exists is probably the Unraid guys. I've been meaning to take a look at it. Right. Uh, but the, uh, you know, I think Linus did the seven gamers, one PC using that. And that yep. is basically out of the box. You can, you know, do a thing and it, and it, and it works really well. I don't think that they've gotten it working yet on any of the AMD platforms, um, Ryzen included, uh, Ryzen or Threadripper. Uh, and that some of that is the NPT bug because that was literally only just patched. And I don't think that's been accepted upstream yet. But there's a guide for that on the forum, too. If you want to patch your kernel, get your hands dirty. It's fine. It'll be totally fine. I promise. So, yeah, 30 second elevator pitch is just I don't, you can have your cake and eat it, too. I mean, you can you can. It's like I like playing games just as much as the next guy. I'm I'm scared to death that uh, there's there's people like with Windows 10. It's like. I don't I don't own Windows 10. Windows 10 is doing God knows right, what. Right. At least I can run it in a sandbox. Uh, it's like I don't really want to give up my games. I can, you know, Wine, honestly, DirectX 9 support in Wine is pretty good. I haven't figured out how to package that in sort of a friendly guide. So if anybody mm-hmm. if anybody wants to do that, then, uh, you know, or wants to wants to wants to work on that, definitely join the forums and hit me up because some of that stuff is just it's really hairy. And then you have the bizarre problems and then it's like, how do you troubleshoot this? And it's just I don't know. We all of that goes away with virtualization. You can just sort of you can just sort of keep running things. So I think not today, but I think that. You know, in, in one to five years, as the hardware support catches up for that, because in the enterprise we have SRIOV, and I've mm-hmm. worked on a few few system, a few production systems that have SRIOV, and that is another way that we deal with some legacy applications that are like you'd you'd be surprised how much stuff in the enterprise needs hardware pass through or or hardware virtualization these days to sure. run certain lines line of business applications. But SRIOV is a glorious thing, and I think that. At some point in the not too distant future, because of ARM making inroads in x86, I mean, if you look at the brass tacks of it, you know, I, I need to multiply two 32-bit numbers together. You can only multiply two 32-bit numbers or two 64-bit numbers together so fast. The advancements have been in parallelizing that. It's like, here's an array of 32-bit integers or 64-bit integers or floats or whatever, and let's multiply that array times this other array, and then, you know, the hardware exists on the CPU to do that. And so it's like, oh, there's there's been an advancement. Things are faster. It's not really going to change until we move away from silicon. I mean, yeah, we're pushing five gigahertz. Maybe we'll get six gigahertz out of, out of silicon, but it's you can only multiply two numbers together so quickly. And that's why right. Sandy Bridge is still, you know, the fastest, you know, whatever. So with ARM making inroads and all this other stuff, I think that we're going to get to a point where we're running entire operating systems inside containers. Yes. Vir- virtually no overhead. And that is more or less the future of computing. And in that scenario, Linux is definitely going to be running Linux, possibly BSD is going to be running on, on, on bare metal. And literally Microsoft is going to wake up one morning and, and be obsolete in that future. That was actually one of the last things I was going to ask you about, because you had said you've said that before. And I, 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 I take great joy in that. I, and I, I just I guess we'll jump over to that because I want to talk about that. So basically what you're saying is that the operating system is going to eventually become completely irrelevant. So Windows apps will run in a Windows container, Mac OS apps, they'll run in a Mac container, so on and so forth. So, and and what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that the great common denominator between all of these things, if you want something to reliably talk to the metal and then hand up, basically what we're doing is apicizing, is that a word? I'm making it up. Apicizing all the entire operating system along with the app and then layering that on top of a reliable, secure common denominator base. Yes. 
that is exactly where the, the future can't go anywhere else if you want secure computing. It's just it is completely unavoidable. If you look at things like, uh, you know, the Intel management engine and the Minix stuff and how this stuff sort of exists outside the realm of whatever. It, we're basically already there. I mean, IT groups uh, will already use that kind of stuff in, inside the enterprise. Cubes, the Cubes OS, you know, we did a video on that. I've been trying to get that to run in a way that would be digestible and repeatable for the audience for a few months, waiting on some stuff to get fixed there. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the AMD platform, because I think the AMD platform with with its multitude of cores and its, and its, its hardware features is much easier on the pocketbook for this type of virtualization. Although the 6-core, the Z370 6-core stuff is not bad. There's it's, it's got a couple rough edges, but for that that kind of virtualization. But Cube, if you want to experience what I'm talking about, Cubes basically delivers the experience sans the PCI pass-through part of it today, especially just running the Linux guest operating systems. Now, we'll do a Windows guest. It'll do a seamless Windows guest, meaning that you've got a Windows window that is right next to a Linux window, and it's got the same, you know, Unix, Linux style window decorations as as, as another uh, window and mm-hmm. uh, only on Windows Seven, not Windows Ten, because Microsoft changed a bunch of stuff, and <laughs> no one no one cares enough to like update the stuff, which is fine. And that's something Canonical can work on. They should go fix that, but so that people can run seamless seamless apps that way. And so I think that you know it's it's funny. I always in the back of my mind, there's a really great story that Joel Spolsky told about Excel. Like he worked for Microsoft. He's the Fogbug software guy. Mm-hmm. And he tells this really great story about Microsoft Excel and Microsoft dumped all this money into Excel and they wanted to take over the Lotus 123 market and they didn't understand because they delivered, you know, as of like Excel 4.0, they delivered a better product. It was superior in every way. It does everything you need it to. It's great. We're kind of there with Linux today. Like it's different. Mm-hmm. Excel is different than Lotus, you know, one, two, three. Linux is different than Windows, is different yep. than, than Mac OS. And if you want somebody that wants the Windows experience or wants the Mac OS experience at Linux, they, they're you're, they're going to be disappointed. And that's that's the problem in some of the messaging today. The situation is basically the same as it was between Excel, I think, and, and to a certain extent. I mean, this is not very much so. True, but so, what was the thing? What won everybody over from from Lotus one, two, three to Excel? And that was the ability to save and open Lotus 1.2.3. And so Joel Spolsky goes into this very long explanation about how, well, we we were originally just planning to be able to open Lotus 1.2.3 formats, but that doesn't really help because you need to save as Lotus 1.2.3 so that you can send that file back to other people right. that are still using Lotus 1.2.3. And yes, that feature is completely irrelevant once everyone is using Excel, but today, right now, we have to be able to open and save 1.2.3. And most other, mm-hmm. and he talks about how most other software of the day would not permit that. And so I, I would I would say that one of the chief complaints among the the more Stallman esque among my audience is like, no, you should not encourage that because that is really terrible. And I see that. I like I don't actually disagree with that. But the pragmatist in me is like, we just this is like the Excel situation. We've got to open and save, and then all of a sudden we're everywhere tomorrow. And so virtualization is one way that we can deliver that functionality. Do you think that Electron plays a role in that ability to open and save, as you put it? The ability to say, if you go to a software manufacturer like Adobe, for example, and they make something like Premiere, or they make Photoshop, or they make you know uh, um, Lightroom, and you say, 
if you write your program and write it in Electron, and we know that Electron has the capability and power to run even a program like a nonlinear video editor. If you do that, simultaneously tomorrow, your product will work on Mac, it will work on Windows, and it will work on Linux, and you only have one code base to target. Do you think that's a viable option? I think that for companies that are starting new programs today, they could probably do that. But I think that when you're talking about a software project that is as as legacy as like the Adobe suite, I think mm-hmm. that it's a, it's it's a much taller order uh, in practice. There's a, it turns out that there's a lot of cruft in those kind of enterprise applications, and I think that the Adobe suite it, everyone uses it, but I would say that it is actually terrible. And I'll give you a really I'll give you a really great example. So multimedia is one of the best things that you can do with many core systems and Adobe Premiere and Adobe After Effects are complete garbage for dealing with anything that is super multi-threaded. They, they've actually had a lot of performance regressions. Now, originally I was thinking that this was down to optimizations for the Apple platform, because basically if you're on Apple anymore, you know, you've got like four or maybe six or eight cores. If you, if you got the trash can Mac, Mm -hmm. Uh, um, and so that, you know, supporting the Mac people is why the Windows people were having such a terrible uh, – the Windows people were having such a terrible experience with that. But it's been more than five years, and Adobe has not fixed that. And being able to parallelize your computation for 1080p or 4K video rendering, rendering and playback, that is a solved problem. We're not reinventing computer science here. Right. We're not having to come up with any kind of like new parallel computing algorithm or anything like that. And this is a very tiny, uh, very eminently portable to other libraries or frameworks aspects of multimedia. And it's not that I don't think that Adobe is doing any work or that they don't have any engineers, software engineers that know what they're doing. I think that the code base has become so crufty and so much like spaghetti code. This is just a guess. I have no inside knowledge. Right. Uh, that it is basically impossible for them to get any forward momentum with any kind of optimizations like that. Because as it stands right now today, if you've got a you know 5 gigahertz 4 core or 5 gigahertz 6 core on the Intel platform, you will generally have a better experience with the Adobe software, even you know rendering, using it, things like that, than you will – uh, on a mini core platform like um, like Threadripper. In fact, you can even have performance regressions where the software is trying to use so many threads and something goes wrong internally that it actually will render slower than if you just turn off some of your cores. And that was not always true. I mean, I remember a time when After Effects, I was doing some some work for the Sci-Fi Channel, and I remember a time when you know, with After Effects, you could actually have multiple machines render multiple frames at the same time. This was in an era of like one or two cores or one or two. You know, you might have a two socket system, which would maybe have four threads. Um, and everything was just peachy. Everything worked worked pretty well. And so I think that because Adobe has not done that, it is not because they are lazy or they don't know what they're doing. It's that because their code base is so crufty that it's going to take a major rewrite to do that. And so if if they do a major rewrite, they probably will use a modern framework like – I don't know about Electron, but something. And then and then it will be cross-platform and, and all that kind of thing. But right now they're looking at the business decision of it like, wow, we're going to have to completely rewrite everything. Maybe when we do that, we'll go for Linux. But until then, maybe we'll figure out something else. But the nice thing about that is that because it's not super multi-threaded – I can make a compelling argument that's like, hey, if you want to use those programs with pass-through where you've got a little bit of GPU acceleration, right. uh, you're basically okay. Yeah, and you know, the at the end of the day, I guess I, as a Linux user, I don't really care how that those software 
platforms or software programs become available to people in the Linux world. I guess just as a, as a Linux advocate, as a Linux user, I just want to see that happen because I see this chicken or the egg thing. Well, we can't come to Linux because there's not software. Well, why don't you make software for Linux? Well, because there's no users on Linux. Well, but the, it's the Excel save problem. Yes, yes, it really is. It really is. So I want to go back to this PCI pass through because again, I I think you are are are, are one of the the um, the experts, so to speak, on it. Do you ever rec- recommend that people try PCI pass through with NVIDIA, or is it just just a bad idea all around? You can uh, you can totally do uh, PCI Express pass through with NVIDIA. So if you're using the Zen hypervisor, you you will have to patch the hypervisor because the Zen hypervisor does not support hiding itself from the guest operating system in such a way that the NVIDIA drivers uh, will not complain. But the situation, the reason mm-hmm. that I don't recommend NVIDIA for pass-through is because the NVIDIA drivers ha- literally have a check to see if they're running in a virtualized environment. And if they are, they die. And mm. so if you if, if you install the drivers, it's like, oh, code 43, I don't know what went wrong. But it's literally like there is a literal check to see if it's in a virtualized environment. If you already get the drivers installed and you boot up your machine, your machine will blue screen. Your Windows machine will blue screen mm-hmm. if it detects that it's running in a, in a virtualized environment. With, with QEMU, KVM, you can, you can specify in your configuration to hide the hypervisor. Uh, and that works for now. Uh, sometimes that stops working depending on the driver version, and then sometimes it comes back. I think NVIDIA is, is trying to walk a tightrope where they're like, well, we don't want enterprise people buying a consumer right. graphics card and using it in a server. Because it turns out for like VDI, especially if you're doing like virtual desktop infrastructure for mm-hmm. like six or, six or eight people, uh, it turns out that that's basically fine. You don't even really need SRIOV. It's, you, can, you can do that in Hyper-V tomorrow. Right, you know, Hyper-V doesn't support hiding your your hypervisor status. At least not the last time that I worked on it. Maybe that's not true anymore. Yeah, well, let me but. tell you, as a person who who has who recently had some experience with Hyper-V, Hyper-V has a lot of problems that, <laughs> that are that are far more drastic than its ability to hide the fact that it's a hypervisor. Um, <laughs> do you? I mean, like serious. It's like you say, a story for another time. But it, they have some major uh, shortcomings. I noticed that at least in your most recent videos, all of your PCI pass-through machines, you're doing those with Ryzen or um, Threadripper. Do you think that Ryzen is a superior platform for PCI pass-through if you're looking for the easiest route to getting stuff to work? No, uh, not sadly, no. Uh, Ryzen with the kernel patch from uh, from Palo at Red Hat uh, that I was talking about before is it's a solved problem. So if you're on Ryzen right now, or you already have Ryzen, or you, you're thinking about getting Ryzen because hey, eight core, an eight core CPU for three hundred dollars, yeah, that sounds like that sounds like a deal. As long as you're willing to patch your kernel, you will have as good of an experience as you do on Intel. That has that will probably okay. be rolled into kernel four point one five. It's not quite there yet, but basically you're okay. If you want, if your if your time is money and you want it tomorrow and you don't want to have to think about it, the X two ninety nine platform. Uh, or the X99 platform because there's honestly there's not really a lot of difference. If you see an eight core X X99 CPU on Super Sale, uh, just buy it. It's fine. But um, X299, the the eight core, the ten core CPU is a thousand dollars, which is a little much to pay for ten cores in my opinion. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the the eight core, like if you go to Micro Center or Fry's, you'll you'll find the eight core CPU on the X299 platform for around five six hundred something like that, which is still a little high. I mean, Intel's definitely you know, I mean, they're they're definitely charging for their products, but it's a lot easier to set up PCI Express pass through on the X299 platform, in my opinion. Threadripper is getting there. Threadripper, the reset bug, honestly, Threadripper would have been great because you get the PCI Express lanes. There's no funny business with that. Everything mm-hmm. works 
really well. It's great. The other thing that, that I'll mention really quick on the Ryzen platform is that you can do it on the B350 chipset, but I would really recommend the X370 chipset because the X370 chipset will let you get by eight by eight into the CPU. Now, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of non-consensus from reviewers and technical writers with regard to how Ryzen and Threadripper handle their PCI Express lanes versus Intel. And I like I've been very, very careful with that to try to make sure that everybody is comparing apples to apples because it's not it's it's almost it's like a it's an apples to almost pretty much an apple type situation. That is and, and so the short version of that is that um, Ryzen has a total of uh, 28 PCI Express lanes. Mm-hmm. And, and Threadripper has a total of 64. And X uh, Z370, Z270 uh, has a total of 20. And depending on uh, your CPU that you buy on X299, it could be uh, 24 or 44 or 28 or 44. I'm sorry. Uh, and so there's like Intel's uh, SKUs. So it's like super confusing for the consumer. It is way more confusing than it needs to be. So with Ryzen, Ryzen seven, Ryzen five, um, 16 lanes for, for graphics, four lanes to the chipset. And the chipset has a PCI express 2.0 interface that it provides for peripherals and USB and things like that. Ryzen 7 also has on-chip USB resources. And then there's another PCI Express by 4 3.0 interface for the NVMe. But it's up to the board partners to route those however they want to route those. In fact, you can use Ryzen without any any PCH at all. If you, well, there's AMD makes a PCH that doesn't use the four PCI Express lanes. So theoretically, we could see Ryzen motherboards that have, you know, by 8 by 8 by four by four mm-hmm. or by by eight by four by four by four i think is more likely uh for like small servers and, and things like that which is really awesome and exciting because i feel like the z270 and z370 are limited because intel provides so much connectivity through the pch so like with, with the, on the z270 z370 there's pci express by four from the CPU to the chipset. And then the chipset has more PCI Express lanes for peripherals. And that's great for low-speed peripherals because, you know, if you've got a mouse connected to a USB controller, obviously that's not using any bandwidth at all. Right, or very little not, anyway. Yeah, very, very little. So, uh, you know, it's good. But then you see people, like you see board partners in Intel's recommended implementation to be like, let's run three high-speed NVMe drives through a PCH that only has a PCI Express 4.0 connection to the CPU. That's bottleneck city. That's going right. to be if you're running RAID, it's just that's going to be terrible. It's going to be it's going to be really bad. And so uh, sometimes you can juggle those connections and get graphics cards connected for for pass through, but you're you're going to have a bottleneck and you don't and you don't realize it. And so some people with a B350 on Ryzen, the B350 chipset which is by 16 to the C, to the GPU, there's it doesn't break that out or do anything with that. And then some B350 motherboards take the lanes that were going to be used for an NVMe and they'll provide it to the an NVMe slot, but they'll also wire it to a PCI Express slot. So you can't use both at the same time, but you could run a second graphics card in that PCI Express by four connection and that's fine. But PCI Express by four is a little bit of a bottleneck if you're running a higher end graphics card like a, you know, anything beyond an RX 580 
uh, or anything beyond, you know, like a 1060, a GTX 1060 from NVIDIA. And so it's not like this is not advertised and this is not covered well in the press or in any reviews or anything. And a lot of a lot of the press will say that there's only 16 lanes on Ryzen and there's only 16 lanes on on Intel and the other lanes, it's like, well, wait, those are those numbers are less than the numbers I said before. Well, the other lanes go to the peripherals and, and other stuff. But you really have to I mean, it's like you really have to look at it in detail to like figure it out and understand what's happening and understand like how your peripherals are connected in order to to deal with it. Because what you're doing a PCI Express pass through, you know, this is there are dozens of us, literally dozens. So yeah, it's not yeah super popular. Well, but here's the thing: all of these dozens of us, uh, and really more like thousands and thousands and thousands of us, uh, are are extremely grateful that there are people like you to actually dig into some of this stuff and 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 be able to provide such a, a comprehensive and straightforward explanation. And I think that's one of the I think that's one of the real draws um, to your to your YouTube channel and to, and to your website. You still recommend the Vega card for uh, for a for a PCI pass through graphics card? It's looking like the um, Sapphire Vega cards are going to have their BIOS, uh, a, a different version of the BIOS than the than the reference versions, uh, which will support reset. But I don't know that for oh, sure yet. Okay. Uh, so it's it's looking like those are those are a pretty good choice. Honestly, Vega fifty six, especially if you can get it for around four hundred, even though it drinks the power, it's a really good deal. Um, in my battle station, I'm still using an ASUS Strix Fury. Uh, as the primary GPU, and then for the pass-through GPU, I'm experimenting with um, I'm experimenting with uh, uh, GTX 1080, I think, as well as uh, Vega 64. So I would really love to see Vega get the get, like a, a lower-ish power version of Vega because honestly, I don't really care about the power usage. Yeah, but that card will generate a ton of heat in my desk, and so mm-hmm. it's kind of like, eh. yeah, especially with it being under the glass and stuff, huh? Yeah, yeah. So it's I kind of I would kind of like not to do that, but then it's like, well, I don't really want to run the Nvidia with the hostile as like the hostile drivers. So it's kind of like, okay, well, this 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 card is is pretty good. One of the things that I was blown away by, and I guess you know, having set up hundreds, if not thousands, of virtual servers um, with libvirt I've probably seen this option at some point, um, but I've never really thought about the practical applications of using it because virtual disks are so convenient and they're so flexible. But you have a video where you describe how you can take a physical install of Windows on an SSD, and you, you can strip out all of the drivers of the, out of the Windows install, and then you can attach that SSD to a virtual machine and boot that computer that physical computer on a virtual instance tell me about that yeah so this is this is sort of fun i call that dual booting like d-u-e-l as opposed to d-u-a-l and so you have one one installation of windows on a physical disk and you can pick it's like i want to run this instance of windows as a virtual machine i want to run this instance of windows on on bare metal and so you've got sort of the best of both worlds but you only have to maintain one one windows installation uh, which is pretty nice, I think. Um, you can do it two ways. You can you can pass through the physical device, uh, you know, with with VertIO. Once you've got the VertIO drivers loaded on the host operating system, or you could pass through, depending on your motherboard, you could pass through the entire SATA controller using PCI Express pass through. And that was one of the ways. Like when Ryzen had the the virtualization bug, you would really uh, the virtualization bug, the NPT bug. Uh, one of the uh, situations where you would really feel that bug is when there was a lot of I/O. And one of the ways around that was to just pass through the entire SATA controller so that the I.O. is handled from within the virtual machine instead of the host operating system. So that seemed not to, to trigger the bug as badly uh, in, the, in the performance regression as badly on Ryzen, in my opinion. 
And so, um, you know, that is, you, you can do it either way and it basically works okay. We've had a few reports of people on our forum um, where the Windows license complains because you're switching hardware. But for me personally, I've just activated Windows once in the virtual environment and once on bare metal and it hasn't complained since then. Um, I know that if you have the, the cloud solution, and you do like the cloud, like you, the cloud login or whatever it is with mm-hmm. Windows. I know in that situation, it also doesn't care, even if you've got an OEM license. So, but the bad, the bad thing is, every time you sign in, I guess it's phoning home to Microsoft or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, that goes back to what we we're talking about about trying to keep things, you know, local and and uh, and and on your premise. But you know, I think overall that this technology that exists and the direction that this technology is going has a really bright future. And like we talked about earlier, I'm super excited about this idea of getting to a point where all of our applications are basically running in virtualized instances. Wendell Wilson, everyone on Twitter at Tech Wendell, that's T-E-K-W-E-N-D-E-L-L. The website is level1techs.com, level1techs.com. Passionate people about technology and how it shapes our world. Well, Wendell, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the Ask Noah show. We'll get you back on the program real soon. No problem. Thank you for having me. It's, It's been fun. The Ask Noah Show continues next Monday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telsis for our call-in system, Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, and Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand you off to Crosspoint coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ, 88.3, LBFM, Grand Forks. <laughs>